I'm Alex Marlowe, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We open today's show with all the news you need on the Russia-Ukraine crisis, and I explain in great detail how my thinking has evolved over the past couple of weeks. As regular listeners know, I was highly skeptical that Russia would invade Ukraine, but I now believe that as it became clear that the West would do virtually nothing to stop him, especially Big Joey the Biden, Vladimir Putin ultimately decided it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Yes, this crisis is a failure of globalism. There's blood on the hands of the establishment media, and the Western world is just simply overmatched here. And it's very painful, particularly for the Ukrainian people. I break it down, and I also offer what I believe is Putin's endgame, or at least the sort of short-term endgame. I think we all know what the long-term endgame is for KGB Vlad. Our guest today is Robert Alt of the Buckeye Institute, the quintessential conservative think tank in Ohio, and he's representing a D.C. restaurant owner who's been targeted for his refusal to enforce anti-science mandates. Eric Flannery's business has been targeted by the totalitarians, and he is using the courts to fight back. Alt gives us the details of the case and explains why this is a hill worth dying on. Plus, we have our caller of the day, but first, a word from our sponsors. get into the Ukraine news. And I will say that it was not, I guess, my best call ever. I'm opening with this because I don't, unlike everyone else in conservative media, I, I don't, I want to be exactly clear with you where I'm evaluating my own takes, because it seems like we're in an era where no one's wrong about anything. And I find that very irritating. And I don't want to be a part of that group. It is funny because some people who are even my friends who are successful and arguably more successful than I am in this space, they somehow think that whatever the world events are always confirms their conclusions. And I would say that I did not, um, uh, my my take on Ukraine was obviously not 100% uh, on the money, but I don't think it was too bad. You know how I know I don't think it was too bad? It was because uh, you guys did not send me a lot of uh, uh, email scolding me for getting stuff wrong. So and I must have caveat everything, I think, uh, reasonably in the ballpark. I did not think a couple of weeks ago we were necessarily going to get war because what we got was Putin moving troops around, which he always does, and moving tanks around and moving them in regions that he's always claimed were his, or at least for the last eight years. Um, But one thing that I was tracking that I was a little disturbed by that I didn't always vocalize completely on the show because I did not want to be a part of the media that was encouraging war um, was that it did seem to be escalating slightly. But I do think the media had a culpability in this. I think the media had a role in it. I think the media, um, which who is clamoring for war, you can see them. Uh, wearing their, their the, in Ukraine, so many of them wearing flak jackets and wearing helmets. And you could see that they really do savor the opportunity to do this sort of journalism theater. And not to say some of that's not necessary and uh, some people aren't impressed over going to war zones and takes a level of bravery, all that I understand. But there is a news industrial complex where the news media, so many people would love to see a war break out. And I find it to be somewhat irresponsible Um, because I think the more we talk about war and the more we realize that we've incompetence like big Joey Biden leading the United States of America, 
the more vulnerable we are should a war break out. And I do think that's pretty much what played out. And in retrospect, there were a couple of crucial moments that indicated that things were changing uh, and they were changing relatively quickly. And I think uh, uh, in, with the benefit of uh, hindsight, you look at some of the sanctions that Joe Biden took off for Russia with regards to weapons. I definitely put Russia in a better position. This was earlier in the Biden administration. It's almost right away when Biden got into office. Uh, this is something that in retrospect was a huge gift to Putin. Uh, another big gift to Putin was giving them the Nord Stream pipeline, essentially the Nord Stream 2 in May. Um, because this was another one which made European Europe further dependent on Russia, which meant that Russia could engage in a level of aggression without probably any consequences other than uh, some hand-wringing in the Western media because people are just way too dependent. Germany in particular, which in retrospect is just so wildly irresponsible, um, but Germany in particular uh, that so dependent on Russia for energy. How they let themselves get into this position is uh, unforgivable, but it is the case, and again, one that is not spoken about enough in the media, but perhaps the one that I think uh, is, is, is the biggest of them all is the fact that Joe Biden made it very clear, he made it crystal clear that if he made moves, uh, there would be absolutely no consequences. And by absolutely no consequences, I will say and it, it, it is very unlikely there would be consequences. I guess I'll, I'll change it to that because he, he basically said that the, the consequences were uh, uh, not going to be there. And this was a January 22nd quote um, where he suggested that the where he said, I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. So I think you're going to see it and it depends on what it does. And then he said, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion, which we talked about that word. And then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. So there is, in retrospect, that should have been a pretty clear signal that it was going to be game on for Russia, that the big Joey administration was going to do anything. And then also, if you're kind of looking back at the timeline, the fact that Joe Biden wouldn't call Vladimir Zelensky, has, doesn't like Zelensky, doesn't think he has respect for Zelensky, doesn't believe in Zelensky. And it just gave, made the suggestion that no one was going to step up on his behalf. The UN, of course, is feckless. The UN is a, is a clown organization, as you guys know. They are watching the scenes this uh, yesterday with Ukraine blasting Russia at a UN meeting on the Russian invasion that was chaired by Russia is a level of insanity that only the modern West is capable of. That we would let that I mean the UN being a Western institution. That is the UN in a nutshell. Ukraine is not part of NATO, and when you've got the most important NATO country, the United States of America, you've got the president ignoring him. And if you listen to Peter Schweitzer talk about it, there is a d direct connection with big Joey Biden's policies, he believes, and Hunter Biden. And when his son is making so much money off of Ukraine, and he was raking it in hand over fist, and the big guy is probably taking a cut. And then Zelensky gets in there, and then all of a sudden, all the money dries up. Actually, the timeline is the money started drying up about a month before Zelensky got in there. Because Zelensky is pro-democracy, as far as we know. He's not an oligarch, as far as we know. And he does not like corruption, as far as we know. And it's a region that's prone to having oligarchs in there. This is another thing that came up with Secretary of State Pompeo uh, when I was in on Wednesday. 
So in retrospect, all of these dots, if you connect all of them, that Big Joey not talking to Zelensky, Big Joey suggesting that, well, maybe if there's a minor incursion, we won't do anything. Well, what's the definition of minor incursion? That's a slippery slope. The UN and NATO and the EU proving they're not going to do anything. Germany's way too dependent on Russian for uh, energy to do anything. That you do see a timeline that indicated it was probably a little more likely that the war was going to happen um, than than perhaps I uh, I called. So you know, I, I, a light may call a light one, but overall, I don't like being a part of the group that is clamoring to hit the panic button because the more we panic and the more it becomes clear that there was going to be no consequences for Russia if we invade. I do think that eggs him on to invade, and I think the media is, is partially responsible. And I don't think if the media hyped this as much as they did. And if big Joey Biden didn't give these media proclamations and Tony Blinken saying that war is coming, there's going to be an invasion. There's going to be an invasion day, which you remember was incorrect. The whole media said he was going to invade last Wednesday, didn't um, the 16th to be precise. I think all those people push this. So when two weeks ago, when I was in here saying, I don't know, I'm not seeing the math that there's going to be war. There were probably a couple data points to suggest maybe it's a little more likely, but uh, overall, I do think the situation changed, and a lot of the situation changed when it emerged that the West was not really going to do much, because the globalist experiment has got us into a place where if you have anything to lose financially, you're less inclined to take on people militarily. We are watching this right now, that there is a genocide taking place in China. There are internment camps for Muslims. Blacks and women are mistreated. There's organ harvesting, sex-selective abortion. They're colonizing Africa. All this is taking place, and we don't care because we want to distribute our Disney movies there. So we don't talk about it. Because we want our Disney stock and our Apple stock to go up and our Tesla stock to go up. So we don't care. So meanwhile, a lot of you all are thinking, well, why are we even talking about this? Why are we talking about a territorial dispute in the Donbass of Ukraine? Especially when we know the outcome, basically, at this point. Not to say I'm not rooting on the Ukraine people to fight. I hope they do. I hope they do, and I hope that there are things that we do in the West to support them, particularly with arms. And this has been one thing that's very interesting. What's been done is the uh, a lot of weapons have been handed out to citizens in Ukraine to fight back as best they can. And it's interesting for the gun control crowd, because I'm sure they, they like this idea. I'm sure even the people like the most gun control, well, uh, here, here's a reason to not have gun control. Here's a reason to have arms, just in case, you know, a guy like Putin, who everyone hates, left, right, and center, seems like, I guess a few on the, maybe a few on the right don't hate, but pretty much everyone left, right, and center hates Putin. And uh, how do you fight back? Zelensky thinks the way to fight back is you give, you arm people with guns, you give them guns. Also really interesting is the mayor of Kiev is a Vitaly Klitschko, who a lot of you boxing fans know is a boxing legend. Uh, and he says he'll be on the front lines fighting on behalf of Kiev. So it seems like the strategy that Zelensky or that, that, that Putin has in place is to continue to undermine Zelensky because that was make things easier for Putin because then he could kind of reclaim Ukraine in a more gradual way that I think would avoid uh, a, a long, prolonged diplomatic problems for him is if he can just kind of push Zelensky out, get Zelensky to free the country or kill him, which is sort of, I think, the plan. And if he could push him out of the country and divide him from his own people, then he could install a apparatchik of some sort, a puppet who is pro-Putin and who says, this is great. Zelensky was an oligarch. He didn't really care about 
um, the country or the people, and he wasn't legitimate. And what is legitimate is me, the pro-Putin guy. If he can get someone like that in there, then basically he can do this probably in a few days, and uh, th- that'll be that. And then we will eventually move on from the subject. So that's kind of what we're looking at at the moment. I think that's probably the most likely outcome at this time. I don't think World War III is the most likely outcome at this time because I don't know what the appetite is for a massive war. And it's interesting, if you go back and look at it, we've looked at a few of the times where the United States has gotten involved in uh, seemingly somewhat small areas overseas, halfway around the world over the last couple of decades. I'm thinking Afghanistan and Iraq. I've not pulled down Operation Desert Storm in Kuwait. Um, or, but I, I would like to, and I think this will confirm it when I do, but the polling for the American president goes up during this time. Like everyone rallies to try to help the people who like democracy or would like to be more free around the world that we're going to go and we're going to, uh, sacrifice blood and treasure. But now the world has changed. And after watching what happened with Afghanistan and Iraq, where we were told we were going to go in, kick butt, and get out. Instead, we went in, didn't really kick butt, and then stayed forever. I don't think there's any appetite for some sort of World War III over territorial regions in a territorial dispute in Ukraine, even as horrible as this is for the Ukrainian people. And it's heartbreaking for them. But I just don't see that there's some sort of a big imperative. And given the globalist experiment, you can bet that there isn't for a lot of people elsewhere uh, around the world because they're more dependent on Russia for oil and and energy, et cetera. So I think Putin's got a pretty quick path here to reclaim huge sections of Ukraine at this point, if not the whole thing. And he can do it basically by just gets, gets the puppet in there. And then that would be, that would basically give him time to kind of gradually absorb it. I think that's the most likely narrative at this time. I'm heartened somewhat by the outpouring of support for Ukraine around the world. I think that's a very good thing. Uh, You look at places like just uh, the places in New York, in Kansas City, in Cleveland, Dallas demonstrations, and around the world as well. People lighting up in the Ukrainian colors. But what does that mean? It's it's nice show of solidarity, but does is there any practical way of pushing back on Putin? Big Joey just basically made the case that he's not going to. And if you chart the timeline, as Francis Martel has at Breitbart News, if anything, it seems like Big Joey is encouraging this. If anything, she's a piece called "Putin Attacked Ukraine After Biden Sent Signal There Would Be No Significant Consequences," and in retrospect, that's the story of the year. It really is. So as much as I sort of was not trying to be a part of the problem, in retrospect, that is it. The Big Joey, as well as the rest of Europe, made it clear that if Russia makes moves, nothing is really going to happen to them. The latest example is how there have been sanctions put in place, additional sanctions put in place on Russia, but not on Putin. And this is something that we have a story on this at Breitbart as well. Pretty bizarre. By the way, Putin has said it's too late for sanctions. But uh, but Biden said, has put some new sanctions on, but we don't really know what they are. But they don't have to do with oil, and they don't have to do with Putin himself. So Putin is able to operate personally, same as he has. Their energy sector is exactly how it is, or was, and will be. No sanctions on that. It just it just seems very empty, almost intentionally so. And much of the world, Putin is just doing a lot of tough talk and saying that, that this, it's too late for sanctions anyway. 
Not to mention Putin is making not so veiled threats that he's willing to go nuclear if people stand in his way. Which again, I don't buy it. But also him saying this is sort of a dare to see what sort of a reaction he's going to get. And he's just not going to get a reaction that people are willing to go to nuclear war over a couple of regions of Ukraine. It's just not going to happen at this moment. We're not in that moment 20 years ago where the thought would be you meet comments like this with a massive show of force. America sends in ground troops. That said, it's possible because of the military industrial complex. We're seeing Lloyd Austin uh, send thousands of more troops to Eastern Europe. We're seeing a diversion of forces from the U.S. border to the Ukrainian-Russia border. Now, how do you feel about that one? Especially you America firsters who believe that elections have consequences. Justin Trudeau has boldly declared his opposition to authoritarianism, but only in Ukraine. One of the scariest stories of the day, by the way, and I will digress for a moment to mention this, is Canada has a new law out there that would penalize intent to commit online hate speech. Of course, the online hate speech is just anything that's conservative. This is the whole problem with hate speech and hate speech laws. And this is why I've always posed them and always will, is because it is a slippery slope because it depends on who defines hate speech. If you want to start penalizing people for saying stuff that is hateful, whatever that means, generally that just means racist, sexist, bigoted, or whatever. But whoever defines what that means, if that's illegal, then they can just change the definition to include normative viewpoints they don't like. If that allows them to, you know, arrest or whatever, the people who are a, a, the, their political opponents. So now the Canada's new law would penalize if you had the intent to commit it, which is amazing because Justin Trudeau is most often in blackface. He's usually doing some sort of uh, something that would broadly fall in the definition of hate speech. But that's what they're up to. Um, Russia forces seize the Chernobyl nuclear power plant it is another one where it's an amazing headline, but then what do they do with it? So they're going to have nuclear power, power plant again. Chernobyl, of course, famous for the disaster. It's a big trophy, but then what do they do? I'm, I'm curious about that. Biden has claimed that no one thought that sanctions would stop Putin. I mean, why does he say this stuff? Uh, Kamala Harris just said a couple days ago that sanctions will stop Putin. Uh, you get all these empty calls for peace, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle calling for peace when we stand with the people of Ukraine. It's just virtue signaling. People are doing this all around the world. Uh, someone in the, uh, one of the U- UN ambassadors literally said, give peace a chance. Like quoting the Beatles. Tony Blinken says we're not halting gas and oil purchases from Russia because we're trying to minimize the pain to us. This, you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying? That maybe the narrative is actually that Big Joey likes it. Of all the tough talk, we're not going to halt gas and oil purchases from Russia because they want to minimize pain to us. Of course he wants to minimize pain to us. We talked about this on the broadcast earlier this week that uh, we don't want to feel in the United States any pain over this. But now Russia's invaded and we're sending a signal they're going to get away with it with this. So do we let them get away with it? Maybe that's the right move. It's just so weak. It's just such a weak thing that we didn't see under Trump. Uh, we just didn't see it. Is a Putin was making these moves, and when he was making these moves, Trump certainly wasn't going out there. Mike Pompeo certainly wasn't going out there and announcing Russia. Uh, basically, the war is as good as won for you. I'm just appalled that the southern border agents are uh, literally getting sent to assist the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Uh, it's just, it just, what is a bigger issue to you? And soon the Biden administration, you know, they'll move on to uh, removing words like squaw from our geographic features, as we discussed on Wednesday's broadcast. We're becoming a very lame group 
our leadership class is incredibly mediocre. Actor John Cena used the Ukraine invasion to promote his HBO show, where he plays a superhero and he wishes a superhero was there to help Ukraine. John Kerry wants Putin to stay on track with uh, climate change. This is where people like Putin and Xi Jinping can go to a climate conference and say, oh yes, we care very deeply, Greta. We care very deeply, John Kerry. We care very deeply, Al Gore, about climate change. And by the year 2096, we will start reducing our coal-fired power plants. And Kerry says, we have a triumph here. They've announced their commitment to stopping the threat of climate change. And then he goes and counts his money from Heinz Ketchup. Okay, so anyway, that's where we are. Bad news all the way across the board. N- not a good one. I guess the the I guess the silver lining is is that this will not be overly uh, helpful to the, the big Joey prospects because he's mishandling this as he is handling everything else. But it would be nice to have some solid American leadership at this moment. One story I will bring up that I, is a sleeper for you is that there's a fast spreading COVID nineteen Omicron type variant that we don't know for sure, which is out there. And it just reminds me that we need to be diligent fighting for freedoms because if you look at the death toll for yesterday, or I guess the latest death uh, uh, toll numbers is still, still early in the show. I kind of start looking at these numbers during the show. Um, the numbers, I guess, is from Wednesday are um, higher than they were um, at this time last year in terms of deaths and cases. And yet, for the most part, we're removing the lockdowns. We're removing the sanctions. I love all that. That's terrific. However, it is don't think that the authoritarians might not make another push to try to take more of your freedoms, try to enforce more mandates. It is merely that the polls are so bad for those in power and that they've proven pretty much that they don't know how to crack this code. They don't know how to crack the virus. And they made a lot of mistakes personally. All the mask and vax talk didn't work. And I think they're seeing it now as a political liability. And they are between a rock and a hard place between um, opening up and perhaps getting to declare victory to some degree or declare a new normal. Or they keep us locked down and miserable in order to cheat by mail, even though so many of us are miserable over it. But it is important to fight back in your life against the masks, particularly for kids and against the uh, vaccine mandates, even though the vaccines have largely, um, I, I think, stopped a lot of death. But I think people have made up their mind on it whether they're going to get it. And I think that the uh, anti-science hectoring, the way the vaccines are sold to the public, uh, did kill a lot of people because it would have helped a lot of people, but a lot of people didn't get it because they didn't want to feel like they're part of the problem. The FDA has approved the first ever condom for anal intercourse. True story. Not a joke. I mean, a big accomplishment for Big Joey. Why does there need to be a specific use of that? Like what? I don't get it. This is being hailed as a step forward in sexual health. It can be particularly good for the LGBTQ plus. Oh, that's why it's a it's a win for the for the uh, LGBTQ pluses. That's what it is. I I did not bother reading in great enough detail why this would differ from normal condoms. But again, another one with big Joey Biden administration on the ball as the world claps for our eyes.
Again, Robert Alt is with me, president and CEO of the Buckeye Institute. You can go to BuckeyeInstitute.org if you want to support him. Uh, He runs a think tank in Ohio, but he also is a lawyer who sues the government. He gets into this and why he thinks it's one of the most effective and fun ways to fight back against the authoritarians. And we break down the case of Eric Flannery, who owns a restaurant called The Big Board in Washington, D.C., that got particularly cruel enforcement from the authoritarians with their bogus restaurant coronavirus policies. We break down the policies themselves, and he gets into the details of the case. All that right now. First of all, I do want to talk about the Buckeye Institute, what it is, and you can share what you do, uh, Robert. Uh, let it rip, sir. Sure. So thanks so much for having me on. Buckeye Institute, we're a free market think tank based in Ohio. We do public policy, but we also do litigation. Uh, and uh, uh, there we we successfully litigated the OSHA vaccine mandate. We've got a number of other uh, COVID emergency power cases. In this sense, I'd say I have the best job in the world. I sue the government when it oversteps its <laughs> bounds and when it infringes on constitutional rights. And I get to represent great people like Eric Flannery, who I'm representing in the case we're going to talk about here. Yeah, and that's uh, such a great, I love that line. Uh, it is a, I have to say, if I do have to retire from broadcasting, which I think is one of the best jobs in the world. I, I mean, playing center field for the Yankees would be fine too, but it's a, if I'd retire from uh, broadcasting, I would like to see but the government really, also. center field for the Yankees, is that better than suing the government? I mean, that, I don't you know. Not these days. better than that. <laughs> yeah, not these days. I don't know in like a post-Kaepernick sports world. I don't know if it's better. You could be right, Robert. Uh, but, well, let's talk <laughs> l- l- Let's talk about this case because this is a fascinating case. And uh, the Big Board is a restaurant in D.C. that is also a bar. And it is. Uh, it seems like it's getting uh, targeted perhaps, but certainly emergency mandates have greatly hampered this business that's run by a guy named Eric Flannery. Uh, and these emergency mandates are going on and on and on, as many of us who are skeptical of the government predicted. Uh, This is a key example of this. Give us the background. Sure. So uh, go back to mid-January of this year. Uh, As most cities are beginning to reduce their restrictions, D.C. showing uh, uh, their level of common sense, are doubling down on mandates, a policy that would make even Dr. Fauci blush. And so they go ahead and issue a vaccine mandate wherein every restaurant has to check both the vaccine card and the ID of anyone who enters the building, uh, and they continue to require masking. Uh, Eric Flannery runs a neighborhood bar and restaurant uh, on Capitol Hill, which is, and I mean, the interesting thing is this isn't a political bar. You know, people on the right and the left congregate there. Uh, and he sends out the tweet heard around the world, which was, uh, uh, everyone is welcome yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And for having the audacity to actually say that he's going to welcome everyone, he's not going to restrict access to those with the, with the right papers, the D.C. government came down on him like a ton of bricks. He had multiple, you know, within one day, he had visits by the regulators. Uh, fast forward, he had undercover regulators. He had, you know, multiple different agencies in there. And it, within a matter of days, uh, his his liquor license was pulled. They then cited him uh, for health code violations, which were violations of the COVID rules. And then finally, they yanked his business license altogether. 
but before we drill into more of the specifics, I, I am just so struck by the absurdity of the restaurant culture during the pandemic because we are still doing this thing in many parts of the country, though thankfully many of the sort of national mandates and statewide mandates are, are getting lifted, where we are supposed to, you know, walk into a restaurant with a mask on, walk to our table. And so that, those 45 seconds, I guess, we're, we're not spreading coronavirus. And then we sit there for an hour and a half without our mask on. And that's supposed to be so great. And again, we check for vaccinations, but now that we know that the vaccinations did not stop the virus and uh, for, for full disclosure, Robert, I'm pro vaccine, but it just, it was not, it does not doing what it was sold to us. It was sold to us that it was going to stop the virus. It didn't do that. Uh, it's, it's severely lessened symptoms for a lot of people, but you can still spread the virus if you're vaccinated. So they're checking your vax card and then you could have coronavirus and you just go to your table. You can sit there. It's so illogical. And yet the government maintains that this is necessary for public health. Yeah, and and you take a look as well. I mean, you, you I've joked with friends for for years. I would go to uh, I, I would uh, we were in Ohio. I'd I'd head to the East Coast where they had a lot more of these mandates. And not only you know did you just wear it when you went to the t- until you went to the table, you'd wear your mask and then you sat down, and you took it off, and you ate for for two hours. But we also noticed almost no one then put it back on when they left the restaurant. So like yeah, magically, right. you know, the only thing that requires. That uh, the only time Such that you're susceptible point. to COVID is the 10 feet from the door until you sit down. And then after that, everything's fine. My client, Eric, you know, his big concern, too, was that this really, as far as he was concerned, treated his employees like second class citizens. That's, because, that's what it does. You know, again, it, everyone sitting down, sitting around there, sitting on one side of the bar. They they're not wearing masks, but his employees are required two feet away to wear their masks all day. Uh, And he just did not like the way that that this rule made him treat his employees. You know, this is such an interesting point. And I was thinking about this because I've sung the praises again. I don't try to give out free plugs in the show. feels feels unfair uh, to the advertisers. But uh, there is a place where I have my uh, typical date night uh, with Mrs. Dr. Marlowe. And they've been really great about the masks in that they're in a heavily masked area and they don't make anyone wear masks. But the employees, they all wear the mask still. And I know they're doing this to try to, I guess, keep the health officials at bay. But it is treating them like a second-class citizen, and it is sort. It just reminds you that uh, these are not. They're supposed to be our equals. They're supposed to be a servant class of people. Yeah. Now, and and it is interesting, just the degree. And I think we we see that at businesses all over the place. And I, I, I've. It's not just Eric. I've noticed this. Just that we've gotten used to the fact that maybe we'll go ahead and let the customers do that, but we're going to force the employees of the, these companies to wear them. Uh, and I just, I think it's, I think it's a terrible look. I, I understand why companies who are in fear of, of having regulators come in uh, are doing it, but I think it also goes to a larger point. You noted that the one restaurant, you know, was not necessarily enforcing it on customers. You look at what happened to uh, Eric Flannery and the big board here in DC you know, it's pretty clear from reports that are in the press and just what you what you pick up from talking to people. The Eric's restaurant in D.C. was not the only one that was not enforcing the rule or at least not yeah. enforcing it consistently. Uh, right. You know, what happened here is he actually had the courage to stand up and say something about it. And because of that, he was targeted by the by, you know, three separate D.C. agencies.
Yeah, so he was made an example of. So give us the details on what happened to him. So as, as I mentioned, within one day, uh, they came in to uh, – uh, they, they sent regulators in from – I think the first ones were from the, the D.C. Uh, Alcoholic Beverage Control Board uh, to, to investigate multiple visits, multiple citations – uh, for failure to check the vaccine card, alleged failures to check the vaccine cards, alleged lack of masking requirements. Uh, they subsequently, it was, I think, on January 28th, they went ahead and pulled his liquor license. Uh, and then it was February, I believe, February 1st uh, that they they shut him down on February 3rd they went ahead and pulled his full operating license for failure to uh, comply with the COVID rules. Um, so he has been shut down now, uh, again, since since early February. And here, of course, is the irony. The Alcohol Control Board, the, the very day, so it was Valentine's Day, the mayor goes ahead, she reconsiders the mandates, uh, and she declares that beginning the next day, February 15th, the vaccine mandate requirement was going to be lifted in the district. And by the end of the month, uh, the mask mandate was going to be lifted in the district, which which just goes to finally, you know, some sanity prevailing with regard to regulation in the district. That said, you would think that then that uh, the big board, Eric Flannery, would be able to reopen his restaurant. But no such luck. Uh, he remains closed. If you go into D.C., you can walk into any bar or restaurant. Uh, they're no longer requiring vaccine verification because they don't have to. And yet the big board remains closed. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it shows just the degree to which he has been, been made a target because of his speech. Has anyone shown support for him? Is there a way to support him if people want to help him out in this time? Absolutely. Uh you can go to give, send, go slash everyone is welcome. Uh, and he also has a GoFundMe site. Uh, just search for the big board. Um, you know, he and, and to this end, the story is great. He continues to pay his employees, despite the fact that he's only been open one day this month. Uh, he fully paid them. And so he and rather than just pay them for nothing, he's been having them come in and do community service work. Uh, you know, clean up the neighborhood. So they're, you know, he, he's continuing to help out his employees, uh, but and he also obviously has to continue paying his rent and and other expenses. So anything you can do to help him out is great. Uh, to learn more about the case, you can go to my organization, the BuckeyeInstitute.org, and we've got a full case page that's got information on on it. And we are uh, at the Buckeye Institute are very pleased to be able to represent him pro bono free of charge to uh to help him out in in the, his struggle against uh this overreach robert alt again is with me president and ceo of the buckeye institute which is a very important think tank in ohio and he's representing eric flannery who has got a dc restaurant that has been targeted for being uh, outspoken about not discriminating against people based off of the government's bogus uh, covid rules uh, which are they maintain and it seem to be selectively applied to people they like or don't like which is i think probably something that is worth exploring a little bit more. So what is the main case that you have here, Robert? What is the essence of your argument and what are your hopes for success here? So it really the case boils down to the fact 
that the emergency orders in D.C. have dragged on for two years. Two years. That's no longer an emergency. That's a full term of Congress. Uh, And so uh, by virtue of relying on these emergency orders, by extending them and re-extending them over and over again, essentially what D.C. has done is they've insulated these emergency orders from any meaningful review. Ordinarily, uh, acts of the the D.C. City Council are subject to review by Congress. They don't go into effect for 30 days, which gives Congress the ability to rescind them if they so choose. But emergency orders uh, aren't subject to that review because they're supposed to be temporary and last for no more than 90 days. And so by doing this perpetual renewal, they evade the requirements of the Home Rule Act. And so, number one, it violates those provisions. Uh, And then the second thing, they actually expressly, if you if you actually saw the order from the uh, that was issued to him by the one of the D.C. governmental agencies, it clarifies that he has no right to appeal the decision until after the uh, the state of emergency has ended. Um, They actually suspend APA review in the courts until after the emergency, fundamentally closing the courthouse doors. This violates basic principles of due process. So, so by having this perpetual state of emergency, the city government has insulated uh, any kind of review of its policies from either Congress or the courts, and that's impermissible. So we've ra- we, we've pointed out these problems in demand letters to to multiple agencies. Uh, we're at this point uh, working with them, trying to get them to come to their senses to permit Eric to reopen immediately. Uh, But if they fail to actually do that, if they continue their policy of targeting him and keeping him closed, then the Buckeye Institute will see them in court. What are your prospects here for a victory? What does that look like in your eyes? Would you like to see him just be allowed to open up his business, or are you looking to get more? Well, you know, that's getting him reopened is the – is the first and foremost. I mean, we've, we've got to get his doors reopened. But Eric, you know, is very concerned about what's going on here, the larger picture question. He he dislikes the fact that you've got government entities that are have engaged in this kind of unlawful decision-making. So, uh, you know, if we go to court, we're going to be asking for review of, you know, the bigger picture questions. Uh, but right now, we're seeing whether or not we can at least uh, get them to come to their senses and allow him to reopen. Robert Ald again is with me from the Buckeye Institute. Again, throw us out a website if people want to support what Eric is doing and uh, support the big board. Sure. Uh, give, send, go slash everyone is welcome uh, or GoFundMe and just search for the big board. Uh, sort of coincidentally here, and I think you were slated to be in the broadcast anyway, but uh, you were quoted by us in an article about a Reagan ally named uh, Bill Batchelder, who was laid to rest in Ohio this week, and uh, we quoted you in a piece on this. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Bill was a genuine icon in Ohio politics and uh, an early supporter of Governor and then President Reagan. Uh, he... Uh, 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 and and he was a dear friend. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of clerking for uh, his wife, who's Judge Alice Batchelder on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and got to know him through that. But 
he was known to be uh, you know have tremendous principle. I think you know what I was quoted when when Reagan was putting together his platform committee. Uh, he specifically w- was looking for individuals who he could trust, who would prevent uh, you know sort of moderate or liberal Republicans from sneaking things into the committee. And he he added bill to go ahead and make sure that uh uh that the platform actually stayed solid and suffice it to say bill did his job ably um but uh you know quite frankly you know he was a politician you know of the sort i just i don't think they make him make them like bill bachelor anymore um you know he he was a, a true state statesman and uh, uh just a a genuinely good guy um and he will be deeply missed Thanks, Robert. Really appreciate it. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much. pleasurable caller of the day, Tom in Maine, who broke down not only some of his takes on the news today, but we had a interesting back and forth about his life living essentially off the grid in rural Maine. And of course, as a native Southern Californian, I had to ask him about the frigid temperatures this time of year, uh, how he stays warm and if it's all worth it. It's a the pleasurable conversation. Let's hear it. Long time listener. I think this is my second call to you in the last year. Hey, Tom, I let me ask you, what's, what's the weather like in Maine right now? If we get going. <laughs> let's, let's see. It's about seven below right now with about a 10 or 12 mile an hour wind. So, uh, so yeah, Tom, t- t- Tom, are you, are you a, a trucker? Are you on the road or are you, uh, are you at home now? Uh, believe it or not, uh, my wife and I retired after 30 plus years working for Cisco Foods. And uh, we moved up here in Maine to live 100% off-grid. We needed to uh, bail out of Portland, Oregon, and, and just completely avoid the, the the show that's going on. Um, Tom, so this, so yeah, so how, how do you get plugged in? Because, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you make your point, but I just find this fascinating, especially because. I have a friend or two who loves Maine, and and they do go to Florida though this time of year. They are in Florida this yeah, time. Yeah, of yeah, year. I know a lot, a lot do. Yeah. So, um, but but you're up there now, which is just the so you're off the grid, but you listen to my show. What's kind of your news diet? Uh, yeah, I listen to your show every day on my way to work. I'm an electrician. I I ended up going back to work it, just because I was bored. And yeah, and I I, I gotta say. Real- my dad's about to turn 70 and I was just talking to him about like, I just don't see you ever not working. He, he jokes as he works uh, six days a week. I think he wants to go down to five. I think that's, that's, that's his yeah. goal. Get, get down to five. Yeah, I, I can relate. You know, it's interesting being up here and being off grid and, you know, we're talking about energy and, and a bunch of other things. I did a job for a farmer the other day and bartered with him for a hundred gallons of diesel. Yeah. Um, so it, it really is old school up here. You can still borrow a lot. And uh, like I said, I'm pretty much 100% self-sufficient. Uh, but, you know, as I've been listening to the news the last few days in Ukraine, I'm a big reader because we don't have TV or Internet or anything out on our camp. I just know things about Zelensky that you know, I'm not particularly happy with. Um, you know, you don't 
arrest and jail political opponents. Um, you know, he's got his skeletons in the closet. Um, but I really do think Putin is just trying to protect himself from that Western expansion of NATO and and his access, you know, to the Baltic. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I, I just have a real hard time picking sides. I feel horrible for the Ukrainian people, but, uh, you know... I, I really think that uh, as a Trump supporter, as a Trump voter, that if we'd have had four more years with the energy independence and his ability to, you know, he really was a hardball negotiator with Putin, um, that we'd be in a much better place, uh, both economically. Um, and, and I think the divisiveness would have taken a, a, a turn uh had he had four more years. But I tell you, we, uh, after watching what went on in Portland, even with Trump in office, uh, the best thing that we could have ever done for ourselves was move up here to Maine, move off grid, unplug. And uh, as you know, our, my wife and I are retired age and uh, man, we just have to sit up here and watch it unfold. But fortunately we're buffered, we're protected. And uh, we just don't see the things that you guys see and witness every day down south. Yeah. I got to say, Tom, about eight months of the year, I'd say I'm jealous of you. I don't know about mid-February. I don't know if I'm jealous mid-February. <laughs> well, but, yeah. I'll tell you, about a week ago, you would have hated it. I think I had about 41 below zero, and we were in blizzard conditions with about 30-mile-an-hour winds. So, so then what do you do? I mean, what's the plan? Because that sounds actually dangerous. Uh, well, you know, I, like I said, I'm 100% off-grid. So I have solar energy and I have a wind turbine. So I'm never out of power. Uh, so I don't have to worry about the grid. And as far as my heat source goes, I have a, a wood-fired boiler and I have a wood stove. And I've got so much acreage and so much timber that, you know, I'll, I'll never run out of it fuel source how much wood do you have on hand for a blizzard like that because i'm looking at my garage i think i was doing inventory i think i've got like two and a half bundles of of firewood how how long would that get me about five minutes (laughs) uh yeah i uh i have about 10 cords that are seasoned and uh during the coldest uh from about just past christmas until about the first of february every day was zero or below and I think I went through in 30 to 45 days about a quarter and a half. Wow. I'm, I'm, so I, 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 yeah, I was going to say, what's a quart? Four by, four, by, four by eight, I believe. So four foot by four foot by eight feet long. Four feet deep. Oh, my four goodness. Four feet high, eight feet long. That is something. What a life. I got American That's it for today's show. Thanks to producers Haley and Greg Eben. Next week is a huge week on Breitbart News Daily, which I encourage you to tune in 6 a.m. Eastern time on SiriusXM or the SXM app, plus on the podcast as well, as we will be commemorating the life of Andrew Breitbart, who passed away 10 years ago, March the 1st. So all of that ahead for next week, but that's it for now. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 